You're fat. You will drink anyone. Maybe you show a little bit of cleavage. Maybe you're acting too smart. You're a boss. I just don't understand why you don't have a boyfriend. I would marry you. You're a tequila lover. You're not a party. You're the Chargers. I'm not going to be a Hey, all you catches, it's your favorite former single gal, Erin, who transformed in front of your eyes, got reeled in in front of your ears, and had an Oprah aha moment that changed everything. Ladies, before we can reel in the catch of a lifetime, we must first bait the hook with self-love. You're tuned in to another episode of You're Such a Catch, a podcast dedicated to helping you realize the catch that you are. We do not have to be defined by our relationship status nor conform to societal norms. All we have to do is be ourselves. Last week, we heard from Tiffany Kane as she shared her story about claiming love and life after divorce. She really peeled back the layers as she vulnerably recollected her past. Tiffany and I did an Instagram live after the episode, which was a ton of fun. Thank you to the sexy sound guy, David, who's Tiffany's boyfriend, my girl Nita, and the patriarch of my Potter and family, Dion, for tuning in and participating in our conversation. If you want to catch the replay, it's available on my Instagram at You're Such a Catch. Today, I'm excited for my boyfriend to be back, Mr. Jamar John Johnson. I never call him that. I either call him Babe or Jay. I'm always fascinated by Jamar's discipline, drive, and desire to reach his full potential. The fact that he could even recognize his potential after his traumatic childhood is a true testament to how mentally strong and focused he is on sharing his gifts with the world. I had character traits like hardworking and successful, as well as has goals and aspirations on my list of the universe of what I wanted in my dream man. As you'll hear, he's all those things and more. Today, Jamar's claiming greatness and won't let anything stand in his way, especially his past. Before we get to it, please make sure you've subscribed on whatever podcast player you tune in on. You aren't going to want to miss a thing. If you find this episode helpful, please share it on your Instagram or with a friend or someone who could benefit from the message. There's also a downloadable worksheet that corresponds with the episode. If you want to follow along, take action, and evoke change, click on the link in the episode notes to download and print the form. So, babe, do you want to give my listeners an update on our relationship before we dive into this? What do you call an update on your relationship? Well, I mean, you haven't been on yet, and so, and I haven't really disclosed any juicy details of where we're at. I haven't been on your podcast yet? You mean for this season? for this season, yeah. I mean, we're we're moving along swimmingly. (laughs) (laughs) We are, we're, we're progressing. We're we're getting more entwined in one another's lives on a day to day basis. I think I think the update is positive. Buy this stock. Two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. Oh, he's not divulging many details here, mm-hmm. but that's okay. That's okay. That's not why we're here today, anyways. I mean, I I want to give an update because I think it's important, and I share all aspects of my life very openly, as you're well aware. But really, today, we're here to learn about your story because I think you have a very fascinating story, a story that involves so many things, bravery, courage, strength, believing in something bigger than yourself, which is one thing that I think we align on a lot. And that's why our mindset work and focusing on manifestation and knowing that we have something Um, amazing to share with the world is another commonality we have. But do you want to take us back to the beginning and kind of talk about your childhood and how you were brought up? Yeah, childhood. So I have a talk about my childhood that actually got me vice champion of the world championship of public speaking. It's called Through the Fire. Mm. So my childhood was very tumultuous, to say the least, in this current moment. But it was one in which I, I relate a lot with the, the show Dexter. If anybody's ever watched Dexter, he was born in blood. And I feel like I was kind of born and forged in fire. I was luckily blessed by God, by the universe, with tremendous emotional intelligence at an early age. So I was pretty aware of the things that were happening around me. And I knew there was a lot of things out of my control. So I just had to believe in something greater than myself and and myself and know that in order to 
see a positive outcome as a potential in order to continue living life. Mm -hmm. My father was a Vietnam veteran, and he had a very difficult go of it in the military. He dealt with a lot of racism. He, he got in trouble because of his disobedience with the racist environment that he experienced during the Vietnam era. And so he got a, a bad conduct discharge for punching someone in the mouth for not, not taking the abuse. Mm-hmm. And that basically was like a scarlet letter. Mm-hmm. And so it made it very difficult for him to find work. And he struggled with his mental health. And so he turned to drugs, turned to, to heroin. So three years old was the last time that I actually remember seeing my father and being in his presence. And from there, my mother now had two sons that she was trying her best to raise on her own. And so she went looking for love in all of the wrong places and got caught up with the wrong crowd. And she too found herself addicted to, to drugs. Mm-hmm. And so by the age of five, our lives had spiraled very greatly out of control and I had to witness things that no five-year-old should witness. And and on one fateful day, a social worker came and, and questioned me and my younger brother. And, and obviously he was three, so he could barely say anything. But I was old enough to, to say something. And the all, all, only thing I remember saying out of all the different conversations was that my mother needed help. Mm-hmm. Can you help her, please? Yeah. And How did they end up at your house? Would, had somebody maybe suggested that they... Um, do you like a welfare check or I'm not exactly guardian sure. angel? I'm not sure if it was maybe my grandmother who intervened and got child protective services involved and or if it was neighbors who called. I don't, I don't know how they came to mm-hmm. be in the picture, but I knew that based on my mother's situation and uh, I'm not sure if she was receiving public assistance at the time, welfare, food stamps. But whenever, the, whenever someone is receiving those types of things, they have to go in and check in every quarter or something like that. And mm-hmm. so a person whose job is to maintain the, the welfare of the children, they have to like make sure and inspect, is this person functioning properly? Is this person mm-hmm. okay? And then they question the kids. And, they, and so thankfully there were some checks and balances in place where some people were able to intervene and luckily, we, we weren't just sent into foster care. Luckily, my grandmother basically stepped in and became our foster parent. Mm-hmm. I stayed with her for almost eight years. Wow. And during that time, you know, we were in a house. It was a crowded apartment situation. But my grandmother was a, was a staunch disciplinarian. She, she dealt with her own demons. She was fighting alcoholism herself on a day-to-day basis. But she was very functional. So she was a functional alcoholic. She kept a very clean house. She always cooked. We were always neat in order. And our job was just to go to school, get good grades, stay out of trouble. But I left a void in my life because I was always wondering where my mother was, if she was alive, would I see her again? She would try to come visit us every month or so. She was in and out of different drug rehab programs. And so that period of time, it flew by pretty quick. Uh, And I feel like uh, I compartmentalized a lot of the the stress and the and the the trauma that I had received and in in that time and so it was difficult times. But I remember when I was around nine years old, my mother she called to let me know that my father had been killed. I didn't get all the details in that moment, but years later I found out that my father's name was Theodore. They called him T. T was living in South Carolina with family, and he was apparently trying to break up an altercation between two known associates. One of the associates went and got a shotgun, came back looking for the person he had the original beef with, and he saw my father instead and mistaken and shot my father. So that guy had basically got like a manslaughter charge and went to prison for about 10 years or something like that. I don't know whatever happened to it. It's not something I ever needed or felt the need to pursue. But nine years old, my father was, was, was gone and was never going to be coming back. So it hurt me tremendously, but that was like a kick in, uh, in my mother's pants, and she, she tried really hard to get herself uh, clean. And so it took another two years or so, but she finally did it. She got clean enough to graduate through a drug treatment program, reestablish her 
custody of her now four kids. So she had two more kids over the course of the eight years that I was gone. One of them, my sister Kishma, she ended up living with us as well. And then my youngest brother, Dequan, he ended up living with a foster family from the time he was born until he was three years old. So, you know, early, like basically 1990 or so, that's when my mother regained custody of us. And we moved from my grandmother's house in the Bronx to Throg's Neck of New York City, excuse me, to Spanish Harlem of New York City, which is like Upper East Side, like on the border of like, it's like we're moving on up to the East Side. It's like, you feel like you're going to like the high life of metropolitan living. But, you know, we, we lived in the projects and it was a three bedroom apartment and it was four children. And my mother had a boyfriend at the time, Jose, who she had known since high school. And they had got together and got engaged and eventually got married. But that year was short lived because my mother and Jose ended up picking up their, their drug habits once more. And so now 12 going on 13. So I'm taking the brunt of everything because I have to take care of my siblings because my mother is is not present. And so it was just a lot of stress. There was a lot of fitting into a new environment. And then at the same time, your mother having the struggles with the drugs. And it was a lot to take in. And like I said, I honestly don't know sometimes how I was able to make it through that. Yeah. Except for just feeling at an early age that I was kind of here for something really important. And so mm-hmm. all of these trials and tribulations that I'm going through at the moment are only are, are going to be short term. Mm-hmm. In the long term, I would make it through it and I would see a brighter day. So that's a little bit of my upbringing. And then my mother, you know, early 19, in November 1991, during Thanksgiving, she basically surrendered to her addiction and really understood that she needed help greater than herself and she needed to really tap in and listen and focus. And she started, she checked herself into a program voluntarily. All of my siblings got put with family members around the city. I was a little bit too old. There wasn't a room. So I ended up being put into a foster family in Coney Island. So for about three months, which of of those three months, I could probably remember two days of it. Wow. of, Of like what all transpired because Again, my mind had to get good at compartmentalizing mm-hmm. pain and suffering and trauma so I wouldn't dwell on it. Yeah. And uh, my mother came out the program and she knew that she had a lot of work to do, reestablishing connection with us and communication with us and learning to forgive herself. And we did a lot of family therapy, group therapy, individual therapy, and we just were on the road to recovery. And my mother was like, listen, I made a lot of mistakes in the past. But I'm not going to let those mistakes be the reason that I allow you all to to think that the expectations are going to be lowered for you mm-hmm. because of what mm-hmm. I did. Expectations were still high, and she wanted the best for us. And so the fight that began from that point forward was the fight for I was used to being the boss yeah. And, and now her and I are kind of fighting for <laughs> for who's going to who's going to whose word is going to go where. And she, she ultimately ended up winning that, that <laughs> fight. And at times it was physically, verbally abusive. It was a real fight, not on my part, just like on her part. But I understood she was doing it for because she loved us to death and just wanted us to make it out. And so my upbringing, I would say, was steel forged through the fire. Just listening to you, and I obviously have heard these stories before, but I don't think it gets any easier to kind of hear because our upbringings are so vastly different. And I think about little things that I probably took for granted, even just having my parents who could both go to my sporting events and if I was receiving an award or something, they would be able to go to my school and and see me receive that award or whatever the case may be, my grandparents even being present and all of that and how tough life can be, like especially during those like middle school years, not having all this other stuff happening that you experienced and that you went through. Now, I definitely can see why you don't remember a lot of it because traumatic things even in my own life, I have a hard time kind of really, I mean, certain things can like trigger it and and I'll remember some 
parts, bits and pieces, but I can't remember like big chunks of time during like when the trauma actually occurred. So as you're kind of re-becoming a family and you're you're all back under one roof again, what's going through your head? I mean, you're still at a very young age, but are you thinking still like there's a greater plan for me? I've got to get out of here. I've got to give myself a fighting chance. And like, what does that look like? Because your support system, I mean, I'm assuming when your mom got out, it wasn't just like she got a job very quickly and you had the finances and stuff for you to be able to go do these things. So talk about that a little bit, what your kind of parameters around you looked like, like what that. I can say that it wasn't a ton of support. I think thankfully, because of the various programs, the public assistance programs that my mother was affiliated with, they had options for therapy, options and things. So she didn't have to come out of pocket for some of those those things. But I would say for the first couple of years, I was just in survival mode. It, it was It was just a matter of like, I knew my mother didn't have the money to get us all the things that we wanted. And so by the time I was 12, I just had it up. I just made up my mind that I wouldn't be a burden financially. So I started working. I just started finding ways to make money. I started packing groceries at 12 years old under the table, off the books. Like, like I saw the, the different Central American men doing to raise money for their families. So I started doing that so that I could have the ability to buy the shoes that I wanted and be my own man, so to speak. I wouldn't say that I had grandiose visions of the future, but like for the first, I would say, couple years that my mother got clean. But I would say for me, the pivotal moment came around 15. And it happened in part tapping into sports because I'd never really played organized sports up until that age at all. I yeah. played I played sports before, but it was all just kind of, random. I was always athletic. I was fast. I could do a lot of things, but I just never had someone guide me in that way. My grandmother wasn't ever really interested in pushing us into sports. I had uncles and they were not necessarily organized athletes. So I didn't have anything, anything to model. But when I got into high school, I took a real interest in it. It was like the cool thing to do, to be on a team, to have something to you want to achieve. And my first year playing organized sports, I was still pretty self-centered and, and, and selfish. So when it came down to it, playing on a team took a lot of a time commitment. And I was used to working since I was 12. Mm-hmm. So I literally quit the team six games into the season because I I was like, well, I could I could either spend all this time on the team be the sixth man, which I felt like I was better than being the sixth man, right? So my ego was in was in the way. Or I could go work and then have money and be able to dress the way I want to. And so I chose the the selfish option and I quit quit on my teammates. And doing that when I was out and about and running the street with some of my friends, one of my my closest friends who lived in my building, Robbie, he had a he had a a cousin who who was was a little bit of a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. He basically got us into a lot of things that we might not have done on our own. He kind of was leading us into into trouble. And he got into an altercation with a homeless man on two instances in one night. And basically the cops were called. And three people got arrested except for the guy who started it all. He got away. And so I spent the night in jail at 15 years old. Like real jail or like, like juvenile adu- hall? No, adult jail. Like they oh, just wow. put us in. Even though you were fifteen, they put us in in the overnight jail. It was we wow. were in jail with grown men because mm-hmm. you know you're a black kid in in New York City. You're you're damn near six foot tall. It's like in their mind, you're you're a grown man, mm-hmm. so they treat you differently. Guns drawn when they rolled up on us. So that experience, obviously, my mother was highly upset and was like, "This is, I don't. You're not here to be a hoodlum." So I'm not raising you that way. And 30 days of punishment will give you lots of time (laughs) to reflect on your choices. Mm -hmm. And this is punishment from your mother when you got out. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Like when I got arrested, I mean, I knew that I didn't do anything wrong. So I wasn't worried like from a long-term perspective. 
I knew that I also had to remember the codes of the streets and I couldn't snitch. So I knew that there, I might have to take some heat for someone else's wrongdoing. And that didn't sit well with me. Mm. And so I actually I had this real reflection moment. And I remember, I was like, what, what am I here for? And I, and I remember the things that I learned from my mother's uh, recovery, Narcotics Anonymous. And one of the things that they talk about is if you want to change your life, you have to look at the people, the places, and the things that you're doing with your time, and you have to change those things. Mm-hmm. And I thought about playing sports and being an integral part of the team. I thought about working, making money as an entrepreneur. And I was like, if I'm on this side of the law, those things will be non-existent. And that wasn't acceptable to me. So I knew that I would have to start walking my own path and, and avoiding certain people who I knew tended to get into trouble and, and that I was going to do something better with my life. And so having sports and something to like look forward to, that became the thing that I could focus on to always measure what things I was going to get into, looking at the long-term, short-term consequences and how is this going to benefit my life. So I started just being a lot more critical on how I spent my time. And I avoided the, the one guy who I saw was a catalyst for chaos. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And it's funny because years later, he, he went to juvenile detention for years on end mm-hmm. on two occasions wow. and adult prison. Oh, wow. Now, now he's out finally and he's seems to be reformed, but he's heavily medicated and sedated mm-hmm. because he had some imbalances and stuff that who knows went unchecked. It was just, how do you see yourself? A lot of times people get caught up, you know, you're a teenager you get caught up following the crowd and stuff. And I just, I felt very comfortable being the odd man out. I felt very comfortable pulling my own skin. I felt very comfortable not just being a yes man to what everybody else said was the right thing to do or the cool thing to do. And I just got to give, you know, credit to my mother for giving me that, that self-confidence to not feel like, to not succumb to peer pressure constantly. Well, I think too, like your relationship with your mother is so beautiful because you had this chunk of time that you'll never get back where you were separated. And I think kudos to you for using that time to really focus on forgiveness and healing versus holding something against her or Mm -hmm. being angry and mad about it. Instead, you kind of accepted the circumstances and you dealt with them the best way you could. You took care of your siblings. You made sure that you guys were all taken care of. And when your mom was ready to seek that recovery and she was able to surrender, as you put it, you were there willing to take her back in and become a family again. And it's just a huge testament in my mind to your ability to be able to handle these situations. Like you said, you have a really high emotional IQ because I don't think many people could be able to handle that situation so gracefully. And it wasn't easy. I mean, there were a lot of times where we, I was angry when I, we butted heads a lot. And time to heal that. It, it wasn't all my own doing. It was my mother fighting for that healing. It was my mother, now I wouldn't say necessarily begging for forgiveness, but just apologizing profusely and passionately and then showing it with her actions that she wanted to show up for us because there was a vicious cycle that she had been a victim of herself from her own family. Her dad died in a fire when she was 11 years old. It wasn't, she had a great relationship with him, but the relationship that she saw her mother and her father have together wasn't a great relationship. It was very argumentative and physically violent. And there was all sorts of trauma that she endured. And then to lose her father at such an early age for a girl, it was it was devastating because now she had no other male figure in her life that would give her the type of unconditional love that she so desperately needed. Mm-hmm. So that created a vicious cycle that she was stuck in in that loop. And so that was the thing that my mother kept talking about was that I just, I just want us to break the cycle. I just want us to 
what I say is in my talk is I wanted to excavate all of the pain and suffering in my soul and and mine it for its brilliance and beauty and use it as energy and fuel towards a greater tomorrow versus like using it as as a fuel for a suffering tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I would honestly say out of my three other siblings, I'm probably the most well adjusted in terms of the dealing with those things. Like my other brother, he doesn't he doesn't ever talk about things. So he just he just doesn't deal with it that way. And he always ate his feelings. Mm-hmm. So it's no wonder he's pretty tall, but he's pretty overweight even today. Mm-hmm. And he basically buys material things to try to cover up the pain that he's dealing with. Mm-hmm. Do you think he's aware of that? Or I, these are things that no, you're noticing? I, this, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, I don't think he's this aware of This is your observation. Yeah, this is my observation. I have a sister who's very beautiful. She had very fair skin, very light hazel eyes. and But she had a vicious temper and a vicious mouth. And she mm. got into a lot of trouble because of it. And subsequently... She's a working woman. She has a career. She has a second child. I would say there's a lot of things about her that I noticed that aren't very well adjusted because she held on to a lot of pain. Yeah. She held on to a lot of anger mm-hmm. in her life. Mm-hmm. And then my youngest brother, he's probably the least well adjusted. And he's a talented artist, talented musician. In his music, you can hear how much pain and suffering he's still enduring. And you can hear the victimology that he subscribes to. And, you know, there's a lot of people with talent, but they, they can't seem to put it all together to to accomplish the things that they want. And it's always someone else's fault. And for me, I just always realized that I had to be the answer to my problems. Because if I left it to someone else, there was gonna, someone else is gonna let you down at some point. But you ultimately can never let yourself down unless you quit. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you keep going, if you keep fighting, you, you, have a, you always have a chance to turn the corner eventually for yourself. But other people at some point, you can't, other people, they get tired of the different things that you might be doing that is, is counterproductive to what you say you want. And besides your mother, like there's no one in this world that's, that, that has to or that is willing, that is going to put up with your BS Mm -hmm. after a certain point. And even some people have a strange parental relationships, right? So there's a breaking point for just about everybody, but you can't give up on yourself. No, I I 100% agree. Now you mentioned your mom lost her father at such a young age and she didn't have that unconditional love from a male figure in her life. I mean, you had the exact same experience. So how do you think that's affected you? And did you find somebody else, like did that naturally come to you that kind of didn't obviously take the place of your father, but kind of had that male role model type look and feel in your life? Yeah, so for a time, Jose, rest in peace, he actually passed away about five years ago from a heart attack. They were divorced, and so he wasn't. It wasn't, it was, a, it was a heavy loss, but it wasn't, it was kind of like one of those things where I, I saw him not taking care of himself from a health standpoint. And I'm like, heart disease in the black community is a really big thing, hypertension, et cetera. So, but Jose, he, he, he gave some good examples on masculinity that I definitely look up to. My mother knew that she couldn't be a man, that she <laughs> couldn't be my father as well, right? Right, right. And so she really did. She really did seek out men to connect me with. I would say in school, I had a lot of really good male role models. The principal of my school was male. My high school basketball coach, my math teacher, my my homeroom teacher. Like so, I had a lot of like men that were like honorable men that were smart and intelligent and. And they understood your situation, like they knew your background? To some degree or another. But I would say that I spent a lot of time at this community center. And there's a guy named Gary Garland Duggan. That was his name. He hated when we called him his real name, Garland. But his name was Gary. He was Jamaican. And he was kind of like the hood Moses. Like in the hood, he just was somebody that everybody could go to. 
He always found a way to get us a warm meal if we needed it. And he had the, he was in charge of the community center, so he would keep it open extra hours and just try to find ways to keep us off the street and out of trouble. And I was always into things different than most people my age demographic. I was playing chess at an early age. I started playing chess around eight, nine years old. So by the time I was 13, 14, 15, I'm playing chess with, I'm beating grown men at the game. So I would spend a lot of time with him kind of doing adult things and helping him plan and organize events in and around the community center and just being involved in that manner. So I wouldn't say that I had a direct male role model that I could model after, but I had a couple that I that I modeled and, and kind of took a little bit from each one. And like I said, because I had a decent amount of EQ, I knew that sometimes you you take a little bit from here and there and you and the things that you maybe don't agree with, you just disregard it. Anybody can give you advice, doesn't mean you have to take it, right? Listen to it, filter it through your own lens and make your own decision, make it an informed, intelligent decision. So I would say that that's something that I think the discipline required to play on a team sport was probably where I got a lot of that accountability. But my mother did teach me a lot of just being disciplined, having a strong mindset, having a good routine. And, and so by the time I got to the military, honestly, it really, it didn't feel that difficult to me because I was used to being in a structured environment overall. To answer the first part of your question, like how does it affect you not having that father figure? I mean, honestly, I can't tell you how it really affects you. I know that there were definitely times of longing, seeing other people with fathers and but honestly, my situation wasn't that uncommon. I mean, there were so many other of my friends who, who maybe 10% of us had a father around. And if, even, if, even if our father, even if their father was around, he wasn't active in their daily life. He was just kind of working, come home. And so we, so none of us really got to see fathers really raising their sons. It's like we were all like wolves raising each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh I have like tears in my eyes because I just, it's just so hard for me to like conceptualize that. And and that that low of a percentage. Yeah. It was really, it was really, really low. There was one guy who had parents that were married in my building that were from my friend group. I'm sure sure there was other like fathers around different age group of kids and stuff. And none of the men around really took time to try to like mentor or give tutelage to all of the neighborhood boys. It was really kind of like you had one group of boys that were, you know, close to like the edge of the end of their teenhood. And so we were kind of following their lead. And some of them had fathers, some of them didn't. But literally it was like the blind leading the blind, so to speak. So even though I would hang out and play the dozens and do like the, just the hangouts and the sports and stuff, ultimately, I just found a path kind of going off on my own, exploring the city, diving deep into things that I just were naturally interested in from the arts and the sciences and, and, and entrepreneurship. And there was various points where I had different internships that exposed me to to men doing things that I didn't, I wouldn't have exposure to otherwise, and that was that. That was just it gave me just like a a little glimmer of light of like here's some things that are possible that I didn't even know existed, and so mm-hmm. always knowing that there's more to learn is really what just became my driver for just wanting to strive for excellence in the things that I did because I knew that if you're excellent in things then you will have more choices in life. Which kind of lends me to, you have a very vast library at home. Mm-hmm. You read a lot of books. Mm-hmm. You also watch a lot of YouTube, and it's not just for entertainment purposes. Mm-hmm. You're constantly, in my mind, learning. Yes. <laughs> and I think also you're just, you're such a creative person you have so much creative energy. You're always coming up with new ideas, new business ideas, 
new things you want to implement, new angles on things. You're always 10 steps ahead on new and inventive things that are out there. Like you talked about your first experience with crypto, which Mm was what year? Well, I first bought some in 2014, but I started to think about the implications of it back in 2010. Yeah, which is so interesting to me too, because you do this all on your own kind of innately. And and you find joy in it. You you really do. You find joy in learning. You find joy in like exploring new things and and reading these books. I, I once maybe said we might have to pare down the books if we move in together. And the face I got was like, oh hell no, those books are coming with me. And they don't go on a bookshelf, Aaron. They need to be accessible because at any point in time I might need to open one up and reference it. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> but um. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. And the reason being is I'm a very new entrepreneur. I've been doing this for, what, just over a year now. And I think a lot of people don't realize that aren't on the same journey, how mentally taxing it is. A lot of people around you don't understand what you're doing. They don't see the behind the scenes. They don't know the sometimes mental anguish that comes with it, the lack of support. And how you have to be all things to yourself, which you've already kind of talked about. Like you you said, at the end of the day, it's it's me. It comes down to me and me showing up for myself and me not giving up. So walk me through how you developed such a strong mental mindset. Because I know when I've even had hangups, you've thankfully, I mean, and I think that's been one of the most beautiful things about our relationship is you understand exactly where I am. So as I have pits and valleys and dips or whatever, if you want to call them, in my journey, you're able to really guide me and also understand and have empathy for where I'm at. It doesn't become this problematic thing in our relationship because you've been there. But also knowing that from my side and knowing that you went through this, purely on your own, makes your journey even that much more remarkable because you're on what? You're 10 of entrepreneurship, something like that? I would say, I mean, realistically, I would say probably I'm on year 16 going on 17. Okay. But if you look at when I really started, I mean, it started at 12 years old. I mean, I went through phases when I was 16, 15, 16, I had had an airbrush business because I was a really good artist. And from there, I found opportunities and, and created like a little messenger delivery business. I was always just inventive in creating opportunities as opposed to just looking for a job. Because the one thing too, I never really liked the idea of clocking in and doing the same repetitive thing every day. And so the few times that I did have those types of gigs, I always felt like I wasn't being able to maximize my potential. I also realized that there was a limitation because if I'm getting paid an hourly wage, then I'd have to, the only way to make more money is to just work more hours. And I realized that that was a zero-sum game in the long term. Like at some point, you need to have something where it's not attached to an hour that you work. It's attached to the value that you can bring. And that's why I say, about 16 years because when I was 25 is when my best friend, Sean, who just retired from the Navy after 24 years, he mailed me a book. He didn't tell me what he was mailing me. He just asked me for my address. And months later, I get this book in the mail and it was called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it's really interesting because when I finished, I I think I finished the book in two days. Like I'm just like blitzing through it. Like it was all the things that I wish I had learned earlier. Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki was a book about his poor dad was his actual biological father who was a, had a PhD, was the president of a university, was a very, quote unquote, on paper smart guy, but he was cash poor because mm-hmm. all the money he made, he poured it into a bigger house, a car. And, and then his, his rich dad was his friend's father who was a janitor of all things, but he learned to invest in assets at an early age. And so he owned properties and buildings and land and all of these things appreciated in value, especially on the island of Hawaii. So with limited 
with limited space, it become create scarcity. So the value of things that you have in the in and from an asset standpoint go up. And so he just learned these life lessons. So when I read that book in the summer of 2005, my third eye for entrepreneurship had been opened. And I realized what I was, and I realized how creativity and artistry is at the core of an entrepreneur because it's about creatively solving problems that exist, finding market needs and serving it in a unique way. And to me, that's really not that different than being an artist. And so uh, everything I had done from airbrushing to when I was 18, I had the chance to speak in front of 2,000 people at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel for a nonprofit called Facing History and Ourselves. And I got to meet Kofi Annan, the head of the United Nations. And I had a bunch of people running up to the stage, handing me business cards, and they wanted to they wanted me to intern with them, and but I had already had my mindset on the military. But fast forward back to when I was 25 years old, in the summer of 2005, I read this book. I had this epiphany of who I am and what I'm here to do, create. Mm-hmm. And my my best friend Sean, he was flipping real estate in Virginia, but I was living in Japan, so I didn't have the same opportunities being where I was. So I was trying to find, I was, you know, listening to audiobooks and podcasts. I was trying to study and figure out what could I do to maximize the time that I'm here. And I was lucky enough to be selected as my ship's anti-submarine warfare officer, which meant that I had to go to an additional special training course back in the stateside for about a month. So in December of 2005, I got flown back to the States, was living in Newport, Rhode Island for 30 days, going to a course to become the the ASWO, anti-submarine warfare officer. And I was trying to take advantage of my time back in the States, 25, pockets full of money, like, let's Mm -hmm. let's just go do experiences. And one of those experiences was seeing the cast of the Dave Chappelle show at the Improv in Boston which was about an hour and a half, hour 45 away, but it was a snowstorm that weekend. And we were advised not to be on the road. But I disobeyed those <laughs> those orders, mm-hmm. drove through the snowstorm, and saw my first live comedy show, and it was one of the best experiences of my life. Again, I don't remember all of it, but there's some crystallized moments that I really remember. I remember before the show, being packed in like sardines, being uncomfortable, like, man, why did this isn't comfortable? We're sitting sideways to the stage. I went there alone. I remember the room filling up. I remember it ultimately being at capacity with over 700 people in this room. I remember looking around, seeing the, 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 the fullness of it all. And then my undergrad's accounting, so I started to calculate 700 people, nine shows over the course of four or five days, because they were in town. I was just like, Thursday, Friday. They were like, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And they had all of these shows, some nights two, some nights three. I was like, they just pulled in over a million and a half dollars telling jokes. <laughs> yeah. Food, drink. I'm like, this is a business. Bringing people together and speaking, entertaining. Edu- like, this is a business. This I can do this. So 2005 is when I would say officially my entrepreneurial journey began because I was taking every extra moment to learn to how to be better, how to communicate better, how to find that slight edge. And now I had a vehicle that I could take with me everywhere I went, which is my brain, my mouth, the content that I can write, develop, speak, right? And so I knew that I was going to be that for life. But I also knew that that's like a a specific skill set that fits a vertical that also can lend itself to other verticals. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was like a, it was like a, a core craft that if I was able to master it, which could take a lifetime, but if I was able to master it, it would have a 
synergistic effect with any other thing else that I was doing in the pursuit of happiness and entrepreneurship. And so that's why I say it's been about 16 years. So knowing that I had my day gig, hero by day, <laughs> comedian by night, but at the same time, now I realize it was really hero by day and night because comedians are heroes of a different capacity. Mm -hmm. Truth tellers, motivators, inspirers, and given a unique position in, in our society to make people laugh, to give people joy, pleasure, happiness, but also to make people think. I mean, some of my favorite comedians say things that make me think about things differently. And that's what I, I knew I wanted to be that. And listen, it's hard because it, they say it can take a decade just to find your voice. Mm -hmm. And you go from just trying to say anything to get a laugh to like wanting to like wanting your material to matter, wanting your material to say something. But yeah, I mean, early on after that first book in 2005, I was reading everything from Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within, what you've got to do is that you've got to focus <laughs> on your purpose. And he said that, but I didn't really hear it the first time. It wasn't until fast forward almost nine years later, I'm already out of the military. I'm in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Moved there to take this great job, working for a startup, being closer to my daughter. And I was listening to some Napoleon Hill on audio. And he was talking about a lot of people will go through life without knowing their purpose. And it is a lot like a ship leaving the shore destined to be lost at sea. And that metaphor in that unique way mm -hmm. impacted me in that moment tremendously because I had been a naval officer. Mm -hmm. And I had remember how diligent we were about looking at the charts and and making sure we knew where we were going and here's our course and and every time you get on shift you're always trying to maintain your course you're making thousands of small adjustments based on how the sea drifts you off path and the wind right or storms or different obstructions and other ships and so you have to make constant adjustments to get to your destination and so that metaphor made me stop that audiobook, which I still have on my Audible account, over 200 books, right? Yeah. I stopped it, and I wrote down the purpose of my life. Uh -huh. And that that index card has, has adjusted itself. I don't know if I still have the original one, but now the purpose of my life is something I probably say almost every day, if, if not to myself, to someone else. Yeah. Right? We'll almost, tell everybody what it is. Yeah, I would say for me, in that moment, with the download that I got from the universe was that the purpose of my life was to bring joy, pleasure, and happiness to all those around me. To learn daily and achieve greatly by always following my divine creativity so that one day I can say I have helped as many human beings as humanly possible live a life of their own design so that they may bring their gifts and their talents onto the world. And... Ultimately, what that meant was that I'm here to live a life of purpose, inspire others, teach, educate, train, essentially coach, essentially help people through what I like to call the overground railroad, right? The overground railroad of resistance from mediocrity. Mm -hmm. Because it's very easy in life to just be average, be, sure. be mediocre, just yeah. get up and do the same thing over and mm -hmm. over again. Movies that had a tremendous impact on me were like Groundhog Day. Right, just which we are living. I mean, you introduced me to Joe Dispenza, which mm -hmm. is essentially he tells us that our minds are an artifact of the past and we live the same thing over and over and over again until we make a pact to think greater than our environment. Absolutely. And so in knowing that, I'm, I'm just so, I feel so grateful to have this awareness and now I have a path and I know what I need to do and it gives me purpose every day and I wake up pretty much without an alarm clock. 
too damn early. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, but but I mean, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and I'm just inspired with with the mission. It's like I want to impact, you know, as many people as I can. And you know, before I used to have a number on. I want to impact a thousand people. I want to impact a million people. I want to impact. It's like no, I want to impact as many people as I possibly can. And I know that media and the metaverse that's coming is going to be ways to do it. I'm excited because. Zig Ziglar once said, you can have everything you want in this world if only you're willing to help someone else have what they want in this world. And I know that everybody craves freedom, autonomy, creativity, abundance. The things that, the things that I desire, I know, are, are within most other people. Sometimes they might need a little activation. And that's what I feel compelled to do. And, and so the entrepreneurial journey is one of staying true to it. Don't get me wrong. There were times that I, after the after I left the military, I worked in different places, and I just there was a lot of things that I I knew I had to say no to because it was gonna eat my spirit up. And we have to be fit on many different planes. The four main planes we have to be fit are first physical fitness mm-hmm. because if you. As we just witnessed, if you don't have your health, you've got nothing. You're checking out soon. Then you need your mental health. Because if you're physically healthy but mentally unhealthy, then you're, you're checking yourself out. You're, you're pulling the cord too early. Then after that, you've got to have spiritual health. You've got to kind of understand, we've, yeah, we've got trillions of cells in our body. But there's something that connects us all. And art is that bridge. Music, comedy, movies. Art is a bridge that connects us all. The written word connects us all. It lets us know that we're all here for something more than just ourselves and how we relate to one another. And then the fourth one is you got to have financial fitness. If you don't have financial fitness, that affects every other area. That affects your spirit. That affects your 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 mental health that affects your physical health right think about not having access to certain medical care and things like that so those four things those four areas of fitness have to be maintained and worked upon and then and then from there now you can start to ascend to like your high if you look at maslow's hierarchy of needs you can start to ascend to your greatest potential here on this planet so I'm really excited to be on this journey, but the journey is one that, honestly, it's not about being alone doing it any longer. It's about building a tribe mm-hmm. and, and doing it together. If you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, you go together. Mm. Ancient African proverb. <laughs> I love that. What would you say to your younger self, who could also be somebody out there right now, who is experiencing extreme hardship as they're growing up and they're already counting themselves out of the race because they're thinking, man, I'm just starting off from this really low point. Like, how am I ever going to get myself out of here? How am I going to get out of the projects? How am I going to overcome all these obstacles? What would you say? What advice do you have for them? Well, you've got to start to learn in all those areas, those four areas, so that you can do more than just tread water, right? So you can start to swim towards a direction. So I would say you have to start making learning a priority, and then you have to add skills to your tool belt. Skills pay the bills. The more you learn, you earn. And so, and it's not about quote-unquote education, because most of the most impactful people in the world today aren't even college graduates. Sure, yeah. It's about thinking for yourself. It's about learning how to think. YouTube University is something I've subscribed to for a long time. And the men- your mentors are out there. They're in books. They're in videos. They're in lectures. They're in podcasts. There's information overload for sure. But you got to find somebody that you relate to, attach ho- a hold of them, and start to start to draft, to use a, a NASCAR term, 
or a racing term. Drafting is when you're behind someone who's already moving at a fast rate of speed mm, okay. because they're taking on all of that wind resistance and that resistance in business and that resistance in spiritual realm. And they're fighting it all. And at some point, you can then slingshot around them because you've reserved your fuel, you've reserved your focus and your energy. And ultimately, that's what every teacher, leader wants is for the people who come after them to surpass what they've done. Because now you've got more information. You can go faster to get to where they were. Like it's taken me 16 years to get to this point of clarity. But if I coach someone or help someone today, they're going to get to where I'm at much faster if they actually listen and implement. That's really, that's really the truth of it all because we could all try to learn things on our own, but the reality is we all stand on the shoulders of the giants who came before us. Everybody doesn't have to know physics, but enough people know physics that they can create the different electronics and the products and the things that we use. Most people don't know how their car works inside and out, but they know how to get in it and drive from A to B and go get something done. So I would say if someone is in a rough situation is start learning, start implementing, start trying. And honestly, that's, that's one of the reasons why I try to coach you through these little affiliate marketing concepts because they small little commissions and they incrementally compound. If you can learn to do the small things then the bigger things become even easier. Well, thank you for sharing your story so openly and with all my listeners, because I think it's really also just kind of shed some light into our relationship because we come from two different foundations, but we found a way to kind of bring our best to the table and become a true team. Some things that are my strengths might be your opportunities and vice versa, but together we're great, right? Absolutely. Hook, line, and sinker. I'm going to cast some questions Jamar's way, and he's going to rummage through his tackle box for the answers. Hook us up with your best relationship advice. Best relationship advice. Uh, try to be true to yourself and try to um, be interested in the person enough so that you can actually get to know the real them and not their representative. What's the cringiest pickup line someone's used on you? I have never had a woman use a pickup line on me. Ever? Not that, not that I can recall. Not anything that was cringy. Oh, well, what's a non-cringy? I, honestly, I, there's not ha- there hasn't... I don't think women make it a habit of picking up men. Um, <laughs> we could try. <laughs> yeah, I don't, think, I don't think I've ever heard anything that stuck with me to a degree where a woman said something out of you know as an opening salvo that really made me think wow that was clever that was good I don't, I don't think that's ever happened what's something that you're going to let go of that might be holding you back from claiming something that you want something that i'm going to let go of well i think um definitely collected a lot of things in my life that reminded me of certain times I've been in the habit lately of just taking a picture of it and letting the actual physical object go. And so I think that the concept of less is more, meaning, you know, there's some things that, I, that I've held on to because of what they've represented in the past. Clothes, you know, suits, there's things that I have. And it's, to use a phrase, you know, to use a line from Eminem, you know, it's time to clean out my closets. You know, it's time to let go of some things and just create space for more more abundant things to come into my life. So I'll say that's probably that's probably some things that I would want to let go of. The different debris that um is not being used, it's not serving a purpose, but it's just cluttering up my day-to-day existence. Thank you so much for joining Jamar and me for this conversation about claiming greatness. Each of us have a unique talent that we are called to share with the world. At times, the path to getting there may feel overwhelming, or we might get caught up in the cards we're dealt. 
Frustrated that we don't have it easier or bummed it's not going the way in which we envisioned? Rest assured, we're all on our own journeys and we'll get there when we're supposed to. The most important thing is not giving up. Here are a few of my key takeaways. One, be open to therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, family therapy. It's okay to seek help. And a lot of healing can be accomplished by talking through the trauma. Two, you do not have to be a product of your environment. Figure out what's accessible to you. There are public assistant programs available. You don't have to subscribe to victimology. Three, make learning a priority. Add skills to your tool belt. Skills pay the bills. The more you learn, the more you earn. Four, ensure you're fit in these four areas, physical, mental, spiritual, and financial. If one is lacking, do the work to get back on track. And lastly, know your purpose. Live it out each and every day. As long as you keep trying, you're succeeding. If you dug this and you want to hear more from Jamar, our conversation continues over on YSC Unfiltered. We have a more raw discussion, one that highlights how we're navigating some things in our relationship and finding balance with our needs and desires. Next week, I'm hoping to share with you a special conversation with Amy Miles, a shamanic healer who specializes in holistic health. I gifted myself a shamanic healing for my 40th birthday. It was an amazing experience, so much so I asked Amy to come on the podcast because I think others can benefit from this experience too. Little did I know Mercury in retrograde would make it nearly impossible to record with good sound quality. If you only knew the effort we both put forth to bring I Claim Healing to light. Until then, feel free to follow my journey at You're Such a Catch on all social media platforms or apply to be the Catch of the Week, our feature Friday, by visiting yoursuchacatch.com. Ladies, I said it once and I'll say it again. Before we can reel in the catch of a lifetime, we must first bait the hook with self-love.